Open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 15. Gospel of Matthew chapter 15. We're going to begin reading in verse 29. title of the message is A Contrast of People. This morning I want you to see two different groups of people that are pointed out in this passage of Scripture. And I want you to notice something similar about these two groups of people. They had two things in common. One, they were both needy. They were both very needy. Secondly, they both came to Jesus. But only one of them admitted they had need. Let me read this first part of the passage, beginning in verse 29 through the end of this chapter. Departing from there, Jesus went along by the Sea of Galilee, and having gone up on the mountain, he was sitting there. And large crowds came to him, bringing with them those who were lame, crippled, blind, mute, and many others. And they laid them down at his feet, and he healed them. So the crowd marveled as they saw the mute speaking, the crippled restored, and the lame walking, and the blind seeing, and they glorified the God of Israel. And Jesus called his disciples to him, and he said, I feel compassion for the people because they've remained with me now for three days and have nothing to eat. And I do not want to send them away hungry, for they might faint on the way. The disciples said to him, Where would we get so many loaves in this desolate place to satisfy such a large crowd? And Jesus said to them, How many loaves do you have? And they said, Seven, and a few small fish. And he directed the people to sit down on the ground, and he took the seven loaves and the fish, and giving thanks, he broke them and started giving them to the disciples. And the disciples gave them to the people. And they all ate and were satisfied, and they picked up what was left over of the broken pieces, seven large baskets full. And those who ate were 4,000 men beside women and children. And sending away the crowds, Jesus got into the boat and came to the region of Magadan. So the first group of people that comes to Jesus are needy people, but they were the outsiders. And so I want you to see, first of all, the compassion that Jesus has for the outsiders. You ever felt like an outsider? I felt like an outsider when I talked sometimes, not not in South Carolina, but I've spoken in Chicago area and speaking to a group of teenagers, and I said something. I didn't even realize I said it, but they started laughing. I said, what, what are y'all laughing at? They said, you said y'all. And then they said, are you going to say fixing? And I said, well, I was fixing to, but I might not now. When I'm in California, people just like, I just love to hear you talk. I'm like, I didn't know I was like a novelty act. I went into a Carl's Jr. out there and with a group of guys that were also from South Carolina, and the lady behind the counter, just she just she I just love your accent. And then we ordered sweet tea. And she said, what's sweet tea? So to get her back, at the end of our order, she said, would you like ketchup with that? I said, what's ketchup? You know, she's probably, yeah, she's probably from South Carolina. I hadn't figured out how you can squash a tomato and make ketchup out of it. I've also felt like an outsider sometimes by what you wear. Have you ever showed up somewhere that you just didn't have the right outfit on? Maybe like a pool party and you had a three-piece suit. I remember my first, first uh, day at seminary, I had Hebrew. I was taking uh, a class on Hebrew, and we had gone the first day, and all they did was kind of pass out the syllabus. And, you know, 
I went back the next day. I didn't realize we were supposed to read the syllabus. I went in, and there were 20 words on the board that I'd never seen in my life. And the professor said, take out a sheet of paper. And, I, and he said, translate these 20 words. And I'm looking around the room. There's probably 30 people in the room. Everybody is writing something on their paper. You know what I wrote? I wrote 1 to 20. And then I didn't even try to guess. And then what made it worse, he said, okay, exchange papers. And grade your papers. And I just looked at the guy sitting beside me. His name's Bill. I was like, this is going to be easy. And I asked Bill when the class was over, I said, how did you know that we were having an exam or a quiz this morning? He said, I read the syllabus. I was like, well, where I came from, we didn't even use that kind of word in mixed company. I didn't even know what a syllabus was. I found out that they take those things seriously. Now, I made sure I was prepared the next day because I found out every day we had vocabulary words we had to know the translation to. And it really helps if you knew that ahead of time. So I felt out of place. Everybody else in the room, 30 other people, got it. But I didn't. This morning you heard Jeff talk. Jeff's not from around here. I love Jeff's accent. What bothers me is when people in South Carolina come up and say, I love your accent. And I was like, I don't have an accent. I'm from South Carolina. <laughs> this is the way people talk. You're from somewhere else. The Oklahoma group was making fun of me this morning. You talk funny. Sorry. Maybe I'm talking right. You're hearing funny. But we know what it's like to kind of be an outsider, and that's who came to Jesus. And one thing you need to know, Jesus is not in Jewish territory anymore. This is one occasion where Jesus has gone on the east side of the Sea of Galilee. And the passage right before this, he has healed a, the Syrophoenician woman, and he's in pagan territory. These people don't know the God of Israel. These people worship other gods, plural, multiple. And so that's the crowd that Jesus is near the Sea of Galilee, but he's gone up on the mountain. And so oftentimes he kind of went up on the mountain to get away from people. There were times that the press of the crowd and, and the the duty of ministry at times wore him out, and so he needed time to spend with the Father and to recuperate. The only problem is during this part of his ministry, anytime knew he was in, anytime people knew he was in the area, they came and found him. And it said that a large crowd, the words literally a throng of people, approached Jesus and bringing with them people who needed to be healed. In fact, it's interesting. It uses the word lame, crippled, blind, mute, and many others. So we just know the big four things that he's healing is people who had physical infirmity, but he's also healing others that had other types of diseases. And these people had to be brought by somebody. They couldn't get there, especially the lame and the cripple, couldn't get there on their own. Even the blind would need a guide to get to Jesus. And we find out later in the passage, they were there for three days. And Jesus is healing them. So we see this compassion of Jesus lived out, first of all, through healing. The word compassion that's used in this passage really, really means move to the inward parts of a person. It, it literally means your bowels are yearning, and yet that in our culture means something entirely different. They didn't understand anatomy quite like we do. They just thought from the very depths of my being, I hurt for these people. So Jesus had compassion. 
And so they brought many others. And it said they laid them down at Jesus' feet. And I don't know if your picture is, is like four or five people came up and just laid. But the, literally, the word means they cast them there. Now, it doesn't mean they carelessly threw them there, but they basically came up, placed them at Jesus' feet, stepped back and said, see what you can do. Because we've given up. I don't even know if the thought had occurred to them to pray to their pagan gods because they knew their pagan gods didn't really care about infirmities. Because pagan gods were something they created. They could fashion out of wood or stone. and Their pagan gods couldn't do what Jesus was about to do. So they laid the lame, the crippled, the blind, the mute, and many others at the feet of Jesus. And He healed them. The difference in the word lame and cripple is lame meant they had trouble walking. Cripple meant they were crooked or bent. And He healed them. And look at the response to the healing. The crowd marveled. I don't know if that word in English does justice to what was taking place there. The crowd marveled. It means to admire or wonder at. It means to be seeing something that can't be explained humanly. But get the picture. This is going on for three days. I would imagine at the beginning... There's a lot of cries of despair and pain. Help me. But as those were being healed, what were the lame doing? They were up walking and jumping around. So in the midst of cries for pain, there were other people that were expressing shouts of jubilation. I've been healed. And they kept bringing them and laying them at the feet of Jesus. And they marveled because they knew Pagan gods couldn't do this. They saw the mute speaking. They saw the crippled restored. They saw the lame walking. They saw the blind seeing. And here's what they did. It said they glorified the God of Israel. Why does Matthew choose to express it that way? It's because he's indicating to us these were not Jews. These were not people who believed in the God of Israel. This was a new thing for these people to try something different. They came to the feet of Jesus, and when Jesus healed the people, they worshipped a God they had never worshipped before. They glorified the God of Israel, not their pagan deities, not the deities they had created or fashioned out of material and that they could carry with them or control at their whim. They glorified the God of Israel. Can I just say for us, that ought to be the purpose of everything we do. Everything we do ought to be done so that it brings glory to God. And I think about just practical application. It may not be that you need to come to Jesus today for physical healing, but we're all needy. And I love the sense of casting at Jesus' feet. In fact, Peter put it this way in 1 Peter chapter 5. He said, cast all your cares, same word, literally throw your cares at the feet of Jesus and then step back and say, I, I can't fix this. And I just believe in, this, in a crowd this size, there's probably somebody here this morning that you're thinking, that's what the message was for for me. I just needed to hear that part. Because you've got something going on in your life that's bigger than you are that nobody else has been able to fix for you. And you're finally at the end of yourself. And today you need to cast it at the feet of Jesus. 
You see, Jesus gets the most glory when we get to the end of ourselves. There's a lot of things that gets fixed for us that we don't give God credit for. Because we think somehow that was just a coincidence, or man did that, or I did that. And I promise you, if we can take credit for it, we will. But what Jesus did with this healing and what Jesus can do in your life today is do something you can't do. He can fix you. So maybe the only point you needed to hear this morning is there's a God who's able to do exceedingly abundantly beyond anything you could ask or think that when you cast it at His feet, He is able. He also showed compassion through feeding. He calls His disciples. So after three days, He's been healing people. After three days, He calls His disciples to Him. And He says, I feel compassion for the people. And you're thinking, wait a minute, isn't this the same miracle we saw a couple of chapters ago? No, a lot of difference. First of all, that was in Jewish territory. That was 5,000 men, not counting the women and children. This is after three days. If these people had brought a box lunch with them, it was gone. They didn't bring enough for three days. And I love what Jesus says. They've remained with me for three days. I don't want to send them away. They may faint on the way. Jesus is practically thinking, I don't want to take these people I just healed and have them starve to death getting back home. So he has compassion for the people. Let me just tell you that. That's a theme throughout Scripture about Jesus. John 3.16, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believes in Him would not perish but have eternal life. God has compassion for the people. In fact, in Matthew 9, it says Jesus looked out on the people and just said they are like sheep without a shepherd. He was moved to for compassion with them. So he wants to feed them. So the disciples, now in the previous occasion when it was 5,000, the disciples came to Jesus and said, you need to send these people away. Why? Well, because they're hungry and there's nowhere for them to get anything to eat in this desolate place. In this occasion, Jesus takes initiative. He calls his disciples to him and said, we need to do something. They've been here three days. They're going to faint. They're going to fall out if we don't take care of their physical need. We're going to feed them. And the disciples said, well, where are we going to get that much food in this desolate place? And Jesus says, what do you have? Same thing he says really back in the feeding of the 5,000. And it was, okay, what you got? Back then it was five loaves and two small fishes. It was a little boy's lunch. This time it may have been what the disciples brought. They just said, what have we got? Well, we got seven loaves and a few, notice, small fish. So I think he's talking about few in number, but small in size as well. And what are they saying? Jesus, this isn't going to go very far. We can't add a little water to this and make it stretch. What does Jesus say? I love it. Same thing he did last time. Have them sit down. Last time sat down on the grass. This time it's the ground. But he sat down. And Jesus looked up to heaven and gave thanks and started breaking to pieces. And, and I pointed this out last time, but it's important for you to see this as well. Jesus didn't have to do this the way he did it. Jesus could have said, I have compassion for the people. I want to feed them. They're hungry. I don't want them to starve to death on the way, way out of here. And so everybody sit down. Boom, manna from heaven. What does Jesus do? Rather than just have it fall in their lap, which he could have done because he's God, he wanted to use the disciples to be part of 
the ministry of blessing these people with food. So he gave thanks and started passing it out to the disciples. And where the multiplication takes place, I'm not exactly sure if it was just he kept handing it and they kept coming back or they took what he gave them and it just kept multiplying as they gave it out. But they fed over 4,000 people. And then they picked up leftovers. Last time it was small baskets. This time it's seven large baskets in an entirely different word. In fact, this is the type of basket. This was a Gentile basket that could have hold, held a person. How did I know that? Because the same words used over in Acts when they had to lower Paul out of one of the windows to escape people that were trying to kill him. That's the size basket. So when it says they had seven baskets full, this wasn't one that just fit in two hands here. This was a huge basket. That's how much leftovers there were. There was. And again, in the same way, you ask the question, why did Jesus make the disciples do this? He wanted them to be a part of it. But he also wanted them to see that when Jesus does something, it doesn't diminish his resources. When, when he blesses, when he takes care of a need, he's not going back to heaven and saying, well, we won't be able to do that again for a while because we're going to have to restock. <laughs> no, when Jesus blesses, it's out of an abundance of his resources. Seven large baskets full. And then he sent away the crowds, and he got into the boat, and he headed to the region of Magadan. And I, nobody knows where that is. Some commentators want to say, well, that's Magdala, and we know about Mary from Mary Magdalene. But we don't know that's where it is. We just know it's on the other side of the lake, other side of the Sea of Galilee. So Jesus has spent some time ministering in non-Jewish territory, pagan world, healed the Syrophoenician woman, healed these people for three days' worth, fed 4,000. Now he goes back into Jewish territory. And that's where my last point comes from. Let me read. The Pharisees and Sadducees came up, and testing Jesus, they asked him to show them a sign from heaven. But he replied to them, When it is evening, you say, It will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning there will be a storm today, for the sky is red and threatening. Do you not know how to discern, do you know how to discern the appearance of the sky, but cannot discern the signs of the time? An evil and adulterous generation seek after a sign, and a sign will not be given it, except the sign of Jonah. And he left them and went away. And the disciples came to the other side of the sea, but they had forgotten to bring any bread. And Jesus said to them, Watch out and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. They began to discuss this among themselves, saying, He said that because we didn't bring any bread. But Jesus, aware of this, said, You men of little faith, why do you discuss among yourselves that you have no bread? Do you not yet understand or remember the five loaves of the 5,000 and how many baskets full you picked up? Are the seven loaves of the 4,000 and how many large baskets full you picked up? How is it that you do not understand that I did not speak to you concerning bread? But beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Then they understood that he did not say to beware of the leaven of bread, but of the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees. This is amazing. Jesus has been healing people for three days. He's just fed 4,000 people. He's been doing incredible miracles, and then the religious people show up. In fact, it's interesting. It's the Pharisees and Sadducees that come up. Listen, this group doesn't even like each other. This, this group, let me just tell you a little bit. The Pharisees were generally the working class people. Many of the Pharisees had a job 
and they served as Pharisees and, and served on the Sanhedrin. They were conservative. They were very fundamental, scrupulous students of the Word of God. They made sure everybody was obeying the Word of God. Then you got the, the Sadducees. These were the rich people. They made a fortune from temple concessions. They were the ones that sold animals for sacrifice and exchanged money. You couldn't just come to the temple and say, I need to buy a lamb. They said, well, you don't have money to buy the lamb. You're going to have to take your money, exchange it for temple money. So they made money doing that. Then they made money selling the lambs that were going to be sacrificed. They cared nothing for rabbinic tradition. They didn't mind making religious, cultural, and political compromises. They didn't believe in the resurrection or afterlife, so what did they do? Basically, this is as good as it gets to live life to the full. That's the Sadducees. So you can imagine the Pharisees and the Sadducees did not get along. But there's an old saying, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. And so for this purpose, the Pharisees and Sadducees approach Jesus and decide to work together. And their purpose in working together is they want to trap Jesus. They want to test him. And it's interesting, Pharisees and scribes had come to Jesus a few chapters earlier and said, we want to see a sign from you. And what they're saying is, if you really are God, prove it. Do it according to our timetable and our formula. Prove it. Here's not just a sign from you. It's a sign from heaven. They didn't realize Jesus was a sign from heaven. So Jesus says, okay, you want a sign from heaven. How is it? That you know if it's red sky at night, there's an old sailing, an old saying for sailors. Red sky at night, sailors delight. Red sky in morning, sailors take warning. Anybody ever heard that? Even some of the young people have heard that. Very good. That's what, that's what Jesus is saying. How is it that you've learned to, to determine the weather by what the sky looks like at night or what the sky looks like in the morning, and yet you can't see the signs all around you? How is it that you've missed the signs already among you? How is it, for example, that you've missed the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy in the person of Jesus Christ? Jesus could have said, the sign is here. You just missed it. But they do that to test Jesus. They wanted a sign. And so Jesus says, the only sign you're going to get is the sign of Jonah. And he had mentioned that back in Matthew 12. And here's what he said then. He said, an evil and adulterous generation craves for a sign, yet no sign will be given it but the sign of Jonah the prophet. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monster, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will stand up with this generation at the judgment and will condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Here's the problem. These men that wanted a sign, they weren't going to believe when they got a sign. When Jesus rose from the dead as he said he would, you know what the Pharisees did? The guards come to them and say, he's not in the tomb anymore. We've seen an angel. Something's happened. There's been an earthquake. He's not there. You know what the Pharisees did? They didn't say, well, then he really was God. No. They said, here's what you're to say. You tell people that his disciples came and stole his body away in the night. And it says they gave them a large sum of money so that they would lie about this miracle that happened right in front of their face. So these Pharisees weren't looking for a sign. They were looking to trap Jesus. They were testing him. 
And it said that Jesus left them and went away. In fact, this was really a turning point in the gospel. That from this point on, mostly, Jesus is going to spend pouring into his disciples. He's not going to be around the large crowds until the very end of his life and really not dealing with the religious leaders until then. And so we see him now on the other side of the lake, of the sea, and the disciples came to him, came to them, and they had forgotten to bring bread, which I'm kind of thinking, if you had seven baskets full, could you not fit a few of those in the boat? You weren't feeding 4,000 anymore. You just needed to feed 12 plus 1, 13. But here's the concern that Jesus had for the insiders. I think he was concerned for the Pharisees and Sadducees. Listen, Jesus didn't hate the Pharisees and Sadducees. Jesus hated the result of what was going on in their life if they had repented, and some did. Nicodemus, who came to Jesus in John chapter 3, we find him apparently becoming a follower of Christ because at the end of Christ's life, he's the one that helps take his body off the cross and prepare it for burial. In fact, in John chapter 7, when the Pharisees and Sadducees sent out some people to arrest Jesus, those people came back and said, we didn't arrest him because we never heard anybody talk like this. Nicodemus stands up and says, doesn't our law say that we don't condemn a man without two or more witnesses? And they look at Nicodemus and said, you're not becoming one of his followers too, are you? So Jesus loved the Pharisees and Sadducees enough that he died for them too. If they had repented and turned to Christ, and place their faith in Jesus, they would have been saved. But he pulls his disciples to him because he's concerned for them. Because when spiritually hungry people get around religious people, they may think what they're telling is the truth. So Jesus says, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. And they're thinking, oops, talking about bread. Who forgot the bread? I told you to get the bread. We had seven baskets of it. What would you do? I put it in the refrigerator. No. Or somebody's over there finishing off the last bit. I polished it off. No. There were seven baskets full. Why didn't you bring some with you? Well, that's not Jesus, what Jesus was talking about. And Jesus knew what they were thinking and talking about, so he said, you guys are slow. Why don't you understand that I'm not talking about the bread? Forget the bread. What I'm talking about is the Pharisees and Sadducees. I'm telling you, watch out for them. In fact, he uses the word beware and watch out. Watch out to mean discern clearly, pay attention to. Beware to attend to. He's saying, blinking lights ought to be going off right now. I'm telling you, watch out. And keep in mind, these were people who probably looked at the Pharisees and Sadducees and thought, these are our religious leaders. And Jesus is saying it takes just a little bit of their teaching to spoil the whole loaf, the whole generation. So he said, that's what I'm talking about. And they finally realized he's talking about the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees. And so Jesus is saying, listen, just because somebody appears to be religious doesn't necessarily mean what they're talking about is the truth. Let me transfer that into our generation. Do you know that most cults that would deny the deity of Christ don't mind talking about Jesus? They'll, they don't deny that Jesus existed. Most of them don't even deny that he died on the cross. They just deny that it was enough. The Reverend Sun Myung Moon. If you ever heard of the Moonies, they used to like pass out flowers at the airport. When I was at the University of Georgia, they loved standing outside of our cafeteria and they'd pin buttons on us. One year it was flags. They're putting American flags on us. And 
they were wanting us to give them money to support their ministry. And so I finally asked them, I said, what are y'all doing? They said, we're putting this on all the good-looking guys. I said, well, you can have mine back because you gave one to my roommate. He doesn't qualify. But here's what the Reverend Moon believed. He believed that Jesus came to earth, lived a good life. He just didn't finish the mission. Oops, he was crucified. So the Reverend Moon believes that God had to send another prophet to finish the mission. Guess who the Reverend Moon thought that other prophet was? It wasn't that special. He might have been the first guy to want to take a selfie. It's all about me. I've come to finish what Jesus couldn't finish. Listen, here is the, the, here's what you need to watch for with cults. Do they believe that Jesus Christ is the one and only Son of God? That He died on the cross to pay the penalty for your sin and that He is the only way to heaven? Because if they start messing with that, then they're way off track with Scripture. One of the things that concerned me when I got to speak in the old Soviet Union not long after the curtain fell and they were letting Christian groups come in to, to do ministry, I had a lot of questions from some of the young people, and it finally dawned on me, y'all are hearing so many conflicting things right now because there are a lot of cults over there as well. And when you get spiritually hungry people who haven't heard the truth, they just start buying any line that a religious person tells them. So I finally stopped and said, you know what, I'm only, only here for a few days, but here's the best advice I can give you. Anything you hear from me, or one of these other people, if it doesn't square with Scripture, kick it out. Don't believe it. Don't buy it. And don't live your life based on it. This is the truth of God. Anything else is false prophecy. And can I just get real, real with you? There's some people on television that are dangerous. Because they may have a winsome personality, but they're dangerous because they don't preach the Word of God. Might be on the radio. Might have written a book. I'm not attacking anybody. I'm just saying if what they say doesn't square with the Word of God, they're wrong. And they're dangerous because they lead people astray. That's the danger of false prophets and false preachers and false religious people. And that's what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying a little bit of yeast can boil up and affect the entire batch of bread. And that's a good thing. You won't used to do that. But he's saying the same thing can happen with a little bit of false teaching. You start buying it because you don't know the truth. And before you know it, you're following a false prophet. And so Jesus says to his disciples, I love you too much to let you be negatively impacted by the Pharisees and Sadducees who just want you to be religious. Big difference and being religious and having a relationship with Jesus Christ. I mentioned at the beginning that there were two groups of people we're looking at. They were both needy, both came to Jesus, but only one of them admitted they were needy. I read this week about Voltaire, who was a French atheist. He was a philosopher and writer. He died at the age of 83 in 1778. Here's what he said right before he died. He said, Even if a miracle should be wrought in the open marketplace before a thousand sober witnesses, I would rather mistrust my senses than to admit a miracle. And there's people like that today. That happened 200 years ago, over 200 years ago. There's people today that even if a miracle happened, and folks, miracles are happening all around us, 
Anytime somebody comes to faith in Christ, that's a miracle. It's something that only God could do. And there's people in our generation that even in the midst of a miracle would rather believe a lie than the truth of the gospel. Let's pray together. Bow your heads. Father, thank you that your word is truth. And God, thank you that the needy can run to you and there receive forgiveness and salvation. God, there is no life in religion, but there is life in Christ. So, Father, I confess that we're needy today. We're needy for a Savior. If there's someone here who's never trusted you, I pray today would be a day they turn to you to give their life to Christ. Again, Lord, thank you for your truth. In Jesus' name, amen.